Okay, this is the part of our service where we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word. Each week we open the scriptures and pray that by them God would open us up to Himself and to truth. Uh, right now we're in a preaching series that we're calling Seven Mile Road. As undoubtedly you've heard or seen by now, that's the name of our church. And so what we did is, as we're beginning this brand new year together, we said that one of the things we want to do right at the start is begin to sort of cast a vision for what kind of community God is creating and planting and shaping here. What are the things that's going to mark us? What are important to us? What's our values? What are the things that's going to define this brand new church? And for all of that, we said that we could find our hopes and dreams for everything we're going to be about and everything we could become right here in the story of the Seven Mile Road. And so what we've been doing is each week we're starting in Luke 24, in verses 13 to 35, we're looking at this story of the road to Emmaus, or the Seven Mile Road, and each week we're sort of considering a different angle, uh, picking out a different detail and then broadening it through the scriptures and seeing how that might shape us as individuals and as a church. So over seven weeks, we're walking a mile a week, and we're going these seven miles together. We started two weeks ago, we walked mile one together. And we said that one of the details that you see in the story is that the whole thing takes place on a road. The whole thing happens over the course of a journey. And we looked across the breadth of the scriptures, and we said that that same metaphor applies for our entire experience of faith, that faith is likened unto a walk with God, or a road that's traveled, or a journey that's taken. Last week, we looked at another detail of the story, and we considered the condition of these two disciples as they walk the road. And we considered, again, some of the metaphors used to describe their condition, and we saw that it not only described them, but all of us, that all of us start the journey in the same place, that is, as people who are in need. And we talked through what that might do for us as a community. Today, we're walking mile three. When you get to the story in Luke 24, and you read those verses from 13 to 35, it becomes quickly apparent that while you've got this supporting cast of these two disciples, center stage is occupied by someone else. The limelight, the spotlight, the focus of the narrative is on someone else. In fact, it's not just in those few verses, but all of Luke 24 is pointing to Jesus. The whole story is about Jesus, right? If you read the first 12 verses, who is it that is raised from the dead, defeating forever Satan and death and hell and sin? Who is it that accompanies these two disciples as they're walking the road? Who is it that joins their journey and begins to talk with them? Who is it that asks the questions? Who is it that gives the answers? Who is it that opens the scriptures and begins to teach? Who is it that they invite and plead with to stay a little longer? Who is it that stays in their meal and breaks bread? If you're new to church, whenever a question is asked, it's a pretty good safe bet to just answer Jesus. You're usually right. So, so the answer to all of that is Jesus. Everything in the narrative, everything in the story is about Jesus. By the end, their eyes are open to see Jesus. Faith is placed in Jesus. They run on mission to tell everyone about Jesus. And by the time you get to verse 52 at the end of Luke 24, worship is given and offered to Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And as a new church, when you hear that detail, that kind of focus, in not just 
Luke 24, but all of Luke's gospel, and not just Luke's gospel, but all the gospels, and not just the gospels, but all the scriptures that is all pointing to Jesus, that sort of stands out to us. That detail jumps out to us as a new church because our hope, our deep prayer, is that that same reality, that same mark, that same obsession with Jesus would mark our community and our church. Our deep hope, our deep prayer is that this church would be all about Jesus. And so as we're walking mile three, mile one, we talked about road. Mile two, we talked about need. Mile three, we're looking at Jesus. And we're sort of asking ourselves, what would it look like if each of us as individuals were centered on Jesus Christ? And then what would it look like if we were a community of gathered individuals where everything about us was centered on Jesus. Now, I know that you're in a Christian church, and so that seems obvious. Of course, this is about Jesus. But I, what I want you to hear is that while we start with really good intentions, it's real easy to drift and slide and glide to become about something else. Our every intention, what's on our lips, is that this place, this community, would be about Jesus. And yet there's an easy drift in the human heart that seeks to push him off to the side. If we're honest, we live life as though it's really all about us. And Jesus is more like a sidekick, a buddy, a pal, who comes along and is just so happy to be along for the ride, and he's there to make our lives better and to make much of us. In this way, we sort of treat Jesus like Tonto. I don't know if you've ever heard of who Tonto is, the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Let me tell you about the time I first heard the name Tonto. I was a student at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, and I was a student of preaching, and one of my friends named Eric worked at the Center for Preaching. So he's at the Gordon-Conwell Center for Preaching, he's in his office, and he's listening to one of my sermons on his computer. And in walks in a professor of preaching, not just a professor, the professor on our campus of preaching, and he starts listening for a minute or two to my sermon. Now, I don't know what that's like for someone else, but for me, I'm starting to drool at this point of the story because I can't wait to hear what's about to be said. Like, this is like if you're a basketball player, Michael Jordan walks in and is watching you practice. So I'm getting ready for where this story could go. So the professor walks in, he's listening, and he just stands there for a minute or two to my sermon. And then he goes to Eric, who is this? So Eric says, this is my friend Jay. he's a student here at Gordon-Conwell. And so now I'm drooling, I'm, I'm ready. And, and the next question the professor asks is, is he black? <laughs> and, and I had thought that the conversation would go all sorts of ways. I just didn't see it going there. Right? I, I'm ready for it. Yes, I am incredibly gifted and, and, and all this stuff. And, and the only question he can ask is, is he black? So I, I guess I don't sound like a white preacher. So the only other thought for him was, is he black? So my friend Eric says, no, no, he's not black. He's Indian. And that's when I hear it for the first time. He goes, Tonto Indian or Indian Indian? <laughs> I'm ready to go, yes, I will accept the position of preaching here at Gordon-Conwell. And he goes, Tonto Indian or Indian Indian? I swore I would hate that name forever again, wanted nothing to do with it, but it reminded me again when we thought of this sermon. Because here's who Tonto was. 
If you're like me, you don't really know. There's this show called The Lone Ranger back in the 1950s. A huge popular show. The Lone Ranger was this cowboy out west. He wore a black mask around his face, sort of like a white Zorro. And so he would ride around everywhere. He'd catch the bad guys and, and save the good guys. And he was the hero of the show. So who's the theme song about? The Lone Ranger. Who's the show about? The Lone Ranger. Who's the star? The Lone Ranger. Who catches the bad guys and gets the girl and saves the day? The Lone Ranger. But next to the Lone Ranger was this trusty Native American sidekick named Tonto. And Tonto was important and Tonto was smart, but Tonto did what every sidekick is meant to do. Whether it's Robin for Batman or Dr. Watson for Sherlock Holmes, a sidekick's job is real simple. Everything you do, you do to make the star look good, right? So everyone knows the show is about the Lone Ranger. So you might say the Lone Ranger drives and shotgun riding is Tonto. Or the Lone Ranger flies and Tonto is his co-pilot. Everything about Tonto is to make much of the Lone Ranger. All right, the truth is that in the human heart, we're sort of wired to treat everyone and anything that competes for our central spot the same way. We want to be the star, and everything and everyone better be a sidekick at best to point to us, to make much of us, right? We're driving the car, Jesus rides shotgun. Or I'm the pilot, and you've seen the bumper stickers, Jesus is my co-pilot. We're the star, we're the celebrity, and Jesus is just so happy to be invited along for the drive. He doesn't insist on his own demands or glory or his own throne or his own central spot. He's just so happy you've invited him along. And what the scriptures say that we as individuals and we as a church need is a complete paradigm shift. A complete shift in our thinking. It's sort of like when you were in middle school. Do you remember first learning about the solar system? In the, in the beginning of our understanding, it was a geocentric understanding of the universe. That's just a fancy word that meant we thought the earth was the center of the universe and everything, sun, moon, and stars, all the planets revolved around the earth. But then you got guys like Kepler and Galileo and Copernicus who came and said, no, no. The sun, heliocentric, the sun is the center of the universe, and everything, the earth, the moon, the stars, all of it orbits around the sun. And when that idea was first introduced, it was hotly debated by even the church, because humanity hated the idea that we were getting bumped from the side, pushed off to the periphery, and something else was taking center stage. And the Bible says that same war, that same fight, that same struggle exists in the human heart. We want center stage, and everything and everyone, including Jesus himself, orbits around us. And what the Bible is calling for is a complete paradigm shift, where everything now revolves around the sun, you and me, and all things included. And so, what are we doing today? Our hope is that early in the life of this church, we commit radically commit to making sure that this is always and only about Jesus. What we're trying to do today is sort of stick a huge stake in the middle of our community and raise a flag for King Jesus and all of us gather around him. We will always and need to be always about Jesus. Not about us, 
but about Jesus. And so for today, what I want to do is I want to show you a vision of what that could look like. I want you to give you a picture of a man whose life was radically committed in that direction. I want to give you a picture of a person whose life was radically given to the idea that it is all about Jesus and not about me. So for today, we're going to be in John chapter 1 and 3. It's the passage that Charlie read for us, page 886 and 888. And we're looking at John the Baptist. And if John could speak to us, this is what he'd say. He'd say to us, he'd look us in the eye, he'd pull us in close, and he'd say, Listen, if you bought a version of Jesus that is like Tonto, then you've got the whole thing backwards. John would say, Jesus is the star. You are the sidekick. Right? Jesus is God. You're just a man. Jesus is the celebrity. You're just a fan. Jesus drives. You're in the back seat. Jesus flies. You're a passenger at best. Jesus is Lord. You are a subject, a servant, a slave. John would say it like this. I am not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. What would we look like if that became our confession? I am not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. We're going to consider that today. We're going to hear John's testimony. Let me just pray for a moment, submit our time to God, and then we'll consider John 1 and 3 together. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask you for your help and assistance in this time, that by your Holy Spirit, you would impact and touch and empower both the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that a good and faithful and true word would be spoken to your people, and that you would overcome the blindness of our eyes, the deadness of our hearts, the uncleanness of our bodies, and that you would cause your word to penetrate deep into our hearts and bear good fruit, that we might come alive with love and faith for Jesus Christ. We pray that even this day that you would rally this church around the person and work of Jesus, and that today itself that you would drive a stake in the ground for King Jesus, and that everything that happens here would be around him. We pray that seeing John would give us a vision for what that would look like in our lives and then in our community. This is our prayer. We are powerless to do it, so we pray it in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let me just give you a brief profile of the man we're looking at. This is the profile of John the Baptist. We're talking about John, Jesus' cousin, the one who was born to old Zacharias and old Elizabeth in their old age, the one who had burst onto the scene in Israel and begun to preach repentance, repentance of sins and a turning away from sin and towards God. The one who had been calling everyone to be baptized of their sins by the Jordan River. By the time you pick up John's story in the beginning of the Gospels, you find that John's ministry has sort of taken off. I mean, John in every sense has made it. Mark's gospel tells us that everybody in Judea and Jerusalem were streaming down to John. Luke's gospel tells us that every segment of the population was coming to John. So you had tax collectors and sinners and religious folks and soldiers and, and Pharisees, all of them coming to John. In our day, that would mean that it's not just religious folks, church-going folks that comes to John but that everyone was coming to hear him speak and to confess their sins and to be baptized. This is like 
politicians from D.C. and businessmen from Wall Street and celebrities from Hollywood and Bible believers from the Bible Belt, all of them are converging on John. If it were our day, John would be a household name, right? His ministry would have taken off. His books would be bestsellers. Everyone would be following him on Twitter. His, his Facebook page would have more friends than Sibby. He, he would have just a, a ministry everyone knew about, right? Invited to all the national conferences. If he planted a church, it'd be packed out, full house, all six services. That's who John is. John, in every sense, has arrived. John's ministry has arrived. But when you read the story, what you begin to discover is that none of that matters to John. Like honestly, not in a fake, modest sort of way, but honestly to his core, none of that matters to him. That John isn't even slightly concerned about success and attention the way that you and I would be. But that John, almost, and you'll see it in the story, as people are asking questions of him, he begins to grow sort of uncomfortable like he'd much rather spend his time talking about someone else. Because John is convinced to his core, I am not the Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. And that's what you get. So you pick up the story at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So, so this is what happened. The Pharisees who are sitting in Jerusalem send a team of Levites and priests to begin to inquire and interrogate and investigate who John is. The Pharisees are sort of like the religious police of the day. And if a new religious figure is beginning to emerge on the landscape, they want to know who this guy is. So they send the heavy hitters. They send Phar Levites and priests. This is like opening your door and Larry King and Barbara Walters is standing there, mic in hand, ready to pound on you with questions. And, and so they've got to know, they need to investigate, who is this guy? And so that's their first question. They ask him in verse 19, who are you? And to that, John offers this stunning confession. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John says, listen, I know who you're looking for. I know who you're after, but I want you to hear right out, I am not the Christ. I'm not the one you're looking for. I'm not the one that it's all about. I am not the Christ. And so they follow up with another question. So these guys ask, verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? So they've got to know who he is. He's not the Christ. So their next thought is, are you Elijah? So you scratch your head for a second and you go, okay, why Elijah? Why, if he's not the Christ, do they guess maybe he's Elijah? And there's a few reasons. Uh, for one, it might have been the clothes that he's wearing. Right? If you read in the Gospels, you know that John was wearing a camel hair leather garment and, and a big leather belt. John wasn't the kind of guy you'd find on GQ. He's not making a fashion statement. And yet, his clothes were making a profound statement. Because his clothes were like a calling card. Like if I describe to you, think of the man who is in blue tights, red underwear, red S, red cape. You don't have to think for a second and you know that's Superman, right? And immediately those clothes are a calling card, you think of Superman. Well, well, John's clothes work the same way. 
In 2 Kings, we're told that Elijah wore, guess what? A garment of hair and a leather belt. So much so that in 2 Kings, when Elijah is coming from a distance, they don't recognize his face, but they say, that's Elijah, just look at his clothes. And so when John bursts onto the scene and he's dressed the same way, immediately their minds begin to think, Elijah. And, and not just that, you just consider, John is arriving on the scene after 400 years of silence. Between Malachi in the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years where God has not said a word, God has not sent a prophet. And all of a sudden, this man bursts onto the scene and he begins crying out against sin like the prophets. Going toe-to-toe -to -toe with King Herod like Elijah did with King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And immediately, the men and women in the city begin to think, this sounds familiar. You put all that together, plus the fact that in Malachi, there was a prophecy they sort of misunderstood that Elijah was coming. And so, obviously, their question is, are you the Christ? If not... Are you Elijah? And John answers, I am not. So they go back to the drawing board. They go, okay, he's not the Christ and he's not Elijah. And so they follow with this question. Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Back in Deuteronomy, Moses had prophesied that there would come a prophet. Not just a prophet, but the prophet who would sort of act as the mediator between God and man. And now that the story is done, we know that that prophet who mediates between God and man is the person, Jesus Christ. But they didn't know. And so they ask, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And to their disappointment, John answers, how? No. If you consider his responses, it's like he gets more short, more curt, more uncomfortable talking about him each time. Are you the Christ? I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Right? It's just like, let's talk about someone else. And so the, finally, the interviewers in verse 22, this is what they say. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So these guys say to him, listen, John, you've got to tell us something. If you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet, tell us who you are. We've got to go back to Jerusalem and tell the Pharisees something. Don't make us look stupid. Give us something about who you are. And John answers, verse 22. John says, listen, you still want to talk about me. Who am I? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John says, me, you want to know who I am? Okay, this is who I am. Listen, don't even think of me like a person. Think of me just as a voice. John says, you, you, you still want to know who I am? All right, don't, don't even see me as a person. Just see me as a voice that's crying out, prepare the way for the Christ. Let me give you an example of what this is like. Uh, something that I love to do in this is about to show how nerdy I can be, is, is I love watching the State of the Union Address. It's just once a year, it's just this, you know, sort of regal royal moment where once a year the president, whoever he is, whether you're a fan or not, addresses the whole nation. Every station is tuned in, everyone's listening for the president. But my favorite part of the State of the Union Address is the very first part. 
regardless of who's president, every year they do this one thing, and, and I love it because there's something regal and majestic and royal about it. Uh, what happens is that in the entire room of all these politicians and the powers that be and all these movers and shakers, everyone gets quiet because the president's about to enter. And into that quiet, the back doors burst open and in walks in a man. You have no idea who he is. You don't know his name. You don't know his office. You're not sure how he got into D.C. or into the building. You, you have no idea who he is. But he comes in through the back doors, and with a loud voice, he says, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States of America. And then the room just stands and erupts in applause and clapping, and everyone's cheering, and everyone's celebrating. And the President enters, and he shakes hands, and for 10 and 12 minutes, men and women are standing, applauding, and everyone's celebrating, and he makes his way to the pulpit, and nobody ever thinks of the guy again. The back door is closed, and you never see him. Every eye is fixed on the president. Every bit of attention is poured onto the president. Everyone's waiting to hear what the president has to say, and nobody cares about that guy. John says, you want to know who I am? I'm the voice. I'm the one who gets to throw open the doors, and I get to say, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus the Christ. And everyone stands and everyone applauds and everyone looks to him and everyone wants to hear what he has to say and every bit of attention and glory is fixed on him and nobody thinks about me again. Nobody remembers my face. Nobody remembers my name. Nobody cares because everybody is staring at him. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of Christ. I mean, wouldn't that be the joy of my heart if my story was told as a voice? Or, or if our story, your story, was that we in our time and in our space were a voice preparing the way for Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. John says, this is who I am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But it's not enough for these interviewers. That will not do. And so they begin to keep asking him questions. They go on to say, look, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet, then why do you baptize? And John says, are we still stuck on me? Let's not talk about my baptism. I, I baptize people with water, but there is, come one, there is one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and of his sandals I am not even worthy to untie them. Let's look at him. I mean, you just think of that. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This is not struggling you or me who, you know, we have a week of holiness and then we stink. That's not who John is. This is John who from his mother's womb was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is John of whom Jesus would say in Matthew 11... I tell you the truth, of all those born of women, there is none greater than John. Better than all of us. And yet John says, I'm not worthy to even untie his shoelaces. John says, listen, don't even put me in the same sentence with Jesus the Christ unless you note that I am not fit to even touch his shoes. I baptize with water. But there is coming after me one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
And, and John knows. John can preach about repentance till he's blue in the face, but he can't atone for sin. And so that's why in verse 29, the first moment where Jesus appears on scene, what does he say? Look! The Lamb of God who has come to take the sins of the world. The first moment he can, he says, you're, you're, you're asking questions to me. Why don't you look the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world? Let's make much of him. Let's talk about him. Let's consider him. Because John is convinced to his core, I am not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. I can preach. I can call for people to repent. But I can't atone for sins. Look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. You know how freeing that would be for us if that was our confession? Like how freeing would it be for us if we said with John, I am not the Christ. You know how freeing that would be for me? So, so when I get ready to preach and I'm praying with all my heart, God, let these words, these words connect with these people and let it hit their hearts and let it cause faith to stir up and let people be saved out of darkness and hell and brought to the kingdom of light. But I'm not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. How freeing would that be if I got to my core, I can preach, but I'm not the Christ. Or we can plant this church together, but growing it and, and making it succeed, we're not the Christ. Let him increase, let us decrease. All of us. If Sibi and, and the guys who play music, if they got to their core, listen, we're supposed to week after week gather these people whose attention span is like that, and yet fix them and hone them for 20 and 30 minutes in praise and worship to the throne of God, we can sing, we can play, but I'm not the Christ. Let him increase, let us decrease. You and you who are parents, as you parent your children, or, or you who witness and share your faith with co-workers and long for family members to come to faith in Christ, you share, you preach, you live your life in front of them, you do good deeds, and yet at the end of the day, how freeing would it be to say, I am not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. It would free us to be us and let God be God. Because John is convinced to his core, I am not the Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. And that's exactly what John says in chapter 3. If you'll flip over for a second, page 888, we'll look at this real quickly. When you get to John 3, verse 22 and following, what's happened is that now Jesus has arrived on the scene. Jesus, remember, spent the first 30 years or so of his life in the shadows preparing for ministry, working a job as a carpenter. But now at around age 30, Jesus shows up. And now all of a sudden, this strange thing begins to happen in Israel. Everyone is looking at Jesus. All the attention is going to Jesus. All the people are flocking to Jesus. Everyone who was coming to John is now going to Jesus. Everyone's going to him and his disciples to be baptized, to hear him speak. And, and so this thing has happened in John's ministry. John has gone from speaking in packed out stadiums to small church basements. And, and there's less calls to come and speak at the conferences and, and less attention given to him. And, and now John's ratings are beginning to drop. And he's gone from being front page news to somewhere in the obituaries or the classifieds. 
And, and so John's disciples come to him. Verse 26. This is what they say. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You can hear the grave concern that's in their voice. Listen, that guy you pointed to, that guy you baptized, now everyone's going to him. And, and I sort of picture John with a smile on his face from ear to ear. And he says, didn't you hear? I didn't fail to confess, but I confessed. I am not the Christ. This doesn't concern me. It incredibly gives me joy. Listen to what he says. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This is what John says. John says, listen, you're telling me that now all the people are going to him. John says, look, this is what my role has always been. I'm like the best man at the wedding. Nobody gets dressed up on a Saturday morning ready to go and hear the best man. No. You go to a wedding to see the bride given to her groom. That's who everyone's looking at. That's who everyone's waiting to hear from. That's why you get dressed up and drive to a wedding. And my joy is like the best man who gets to toast and celebrate when the bride is given to my friend. And now you're telling me that all the people are streaming to Jesus. You're telling me the bride is going to the groom? Well, then now my joy is complete. This is what I sent for, was sent for because I am not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. Seven Mile Road, this is my question for us. As we begin this year starting to talk about what's central to us, is this our confession? Is this our obsession? That this community and your life and mine will be only and always about Jesus. Where we are not pointing to ourselves, but at all times we are pointing people to Jesus. Where our confession to all who would look to us is, we are not the Christ. He must increase, we must decrease. Why does all this matter? It's because in the human heart there is a drift, there's a slide, there's a glide that longs to push Jesus to the outskirts so that we might take center stage. And it'll never be intentional and we have good intentions and yet the same thing could happen to us. You hear me? I'm not, I'm not wasting words. That same thing could happen to us. You know how easy it is for us to move Jesus to the side and, and something else to become what's central here? Like we go, you know what, we're a family church. And, and, and that's a good thing. And all of a sudden now, marriages and teenagers and children and we're going to have the best Sunday school. And all of a sudden this thing becomes about building good families. Or, or we're going to be a young people's church. And so we're going to reach the young people of this city. And so we're going to... I don't know, rip our jeans and play music loud or whatever it is that we do, but we're going to do it better and cooler than everyone else. Or, or we're going to be a nationality church. I don't know if you've noticed, there's a bunch of brown people here. And so we're going to build this church because we all love hanging out with Indians, and this is going to be a church where we get to finally do that together. I would hate that. 
Or this is going to be, it doesn't have to be any of those things. We're going to be the church that does it right. We're going to look at all these other churches that don't do it right, and we're going to be the ones that do it right. So come look at how we've done it. I have no idea. Maybe it's none of those things. I just know it's a very easy slide for this to become about us and not about Jesus. And so what we need today is a commitment in my heart, in your heart, and our heart as a church to say this has to be about Jesus. We are not the Christ. He must increase. We must decrease. I'll close with this story that I read of Chris Tomlin. If you've heard of Chris Tomlin, he's a well-known worship leader, musician. We sing a bunch of his songs even here at Seven Mile Road. When Chris Tomlin was first becoming popular, he was invited to take this photo shoot. And as he was flying down for his very first photo shoot, a pastor wrote him a letter that he read on the plane. And this is what the letter said. Chris, everyone was coming to John the Baptist in John 3 and saying, You're it. You're the deal. You're getting quite popular here. And John would respond, I am not. There's one that's coming. I can't even tie his shoes. That's the one that you need to go to. And when you see him, you're going to know that he must increase and I must decrease. And then this is what the pastor says. Chris, as they're taking your pictures today, I just want you to hold that in your heart. You don't even tie this guy's shoes. I love that. And I long for that to be my conviction and obsession and yours as well. We don't even get to tie this guy's shoes. But he has invited us to participate so that this might be all about Jesus. So that our commitment as individuals and as a community would be that we are not the Christ. He must increase. We must decrease. If all that's true, I think it will set you free in a bunch of ways. I think it will shape our community in a bunch of ways. But I'll let you talk about all that in soul care this week. Let's pray.